Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verse 34, to chapter 5, verse 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Generosity versus Worldliness. I suppose we've all heard it before. All the church wants is your money. Now, for years, I would drive by a very large and imposing casino on my way to the church building where I worked. I always marveled that no one ever said, all the casino wants is your money. I mean, none of the people who went there said that, nor did the general public. And of course, all that casino wanted was your money without providing you with anything needful for life. They just wanted to give you an illusion and then they wanted to pick your pockets. But then I would think about those businesses that did provide something that was valuable. And still, no one accused them of just being in it for the money. I mean, no one ever said, you know, all that grocery store wants is your money. And yet they do say it about the church, even though giving is entirely voluntary. That would be like going to the grocery store and filling your bags with food, and then an offering would be taken and you'd contribute anything that you felt was appropriate. You know, all that's fascinating to me. I mean, what constitutes this charge that all the church wants is your money? I suppose we all know of hucksters and charlatans who have fleeced the gullible. I know that's a dreadful and a horrible thing, but think of it in terms of that casino that I passed every day. I mean, the very nature of that business is to tempt you with greed and then so to stack the odds against you that you lose every time. If that's not a definition of hucksters and charlatans, well, I'm left speechless. I don't think the church has had charlatans like that of the gambling industry. I use this as an introduction for our next section in Acts because it's all about money and giving and greed and how one appears in the Christian community. But let me start with a basic statement. A key part of the Christian ethic is generosity. Christians believe that our possessions are not our own. Indeed, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the creator. He owns everything, even the cash in our bank account. We're managers of the Lord's assets, and we don't own a thing. And it's expected that a manager will be found faithful in ordering the Lord's assets. And that's where our story of Acts begins. I have in this study already made mention of the fact that the Church of Jesus began on the day of Pentecost. Great many Jews from the Diaspora, 15 different nations, they traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three great pilgrimage feasts. Pentecost was a celebration of the harvest. It was a celebration of God's abundance. But the Holy Spirit had come and the church was formed. And since this movement was the fulfillment of the hopes of the prophets, many of those new believers simply didn't want to go home. Way back in Acts 2, 44 and 45, we were told that the new believers had everything in common. They were selling their belongings as there was need, and they were sharing them with the whole church so that the growth and expansion of the early church would not be interrupted. After all, the earth is the Lord's. And these men and women realized they were stewards of that which belonged to God. But that was back when the church numbered only 3,000. By now, the number has grown to over 20,000, and we can almost imagine the strains that this would have put on how to make sure that everyone was cared for well. And with that, we come to Acts 4, 34 to 37. It says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. 
Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So let's start with that phrase that there was not a needy person among them. And I take that to mean that no one was begging in the Christian community, although the sight of beggars was common in Jerusalem. None of them was going without the daily necessities of life, which, of course, would have included food, clothing, and a place to stay. And that was quite a feat, especially in a church that had grown that large that quickly. But this means that the church of that size, poverty, had been eliminated. It's it's breathtaking to think about it. And then Luke adds that three things had developed in the Christian community. First, he mentions that people sold land and houses. Now, does that mean that all houses and land were sold? Well, I don't think the text necessarily indicates that. You're going to notice that one person who did this selling off of the property is this man named Joseph. He sells a field. Now, the text doesn't say he sold all his property. It only says he sold a field. That is, I think, the text is telling us that Christians would sell some of their goods and make them available. And I think they did this when there was a need. It was a highly sacrificial act. And this really is the ideal for all Christians. Our impulse is to give sacrificially so that, well, God would be glorified. The mission of the church will continue. The gospel will be as widely proclaimed as is possible and that the needy will be taken care of. Then the second thing that we notice is that they're laying the money at the apostles' feet. So we have to assume that this required a great deal of administrative oversight. Now, we also know that the time would come when the apostles rightly took this item off of their own plates and handed this duty over to qualified men who were charged with taking care of the needs of others. Now, that forms the introduction of a later ministry, well, which will eventually be called the ministry of deacons. By the way, we do get a picture of the greatest part of the need in the church, and it had to do with the feeding of widows. And so first, just as a review, people gave sacrificially. Second, for the time being, it was the apostles who handled that administration of funds. And third, it seems that the greatest need was among the widows. And I say that so that we don't get the idea that there were a lot of freeloaders in the early church. I mean, later on, Paul would lay down a rule that if someone will not work, they will not eat. So the church demanded that each individual bear their fair share of the work and of the sacrifice that would be required. Now then, let's move to the description of this man named Joseph. We know he's a Levite. We know he sells a field. And he does what so many others have been doing. He lays the proceeds of that sale at the apostles' feet. So why is that mentioned? Well, for one, the text tells us that the apostles renamed him. They called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That is to say, the apostles thought of him as extraordinarily encouraging. Now, did they think that because of his extraordinarily large gift? Sure, that may well be, although we're not told specifically. But I must say, this matter is somewhat perplexing, don't you think? I mean, evidently, the matter of giving, that is, the amount of the gift, that wasn't hidden from the rest of the church. See, in our day, we make every effort to keep the gift and the amount of it as secret and as hidden as we possibly can. It would appear that wasn't the case in the early church. But there are other things that we need to know about this man, Joseph, the man who's renamed Barnabas, son of encouragement. We know he was from Cyprus, and he had come to live in Jerusalem. 
Acts 9 tells us that after Paul's dramatic conversion, everyone was afraid of Paul. No one wanted to be associated with him. And so it was this very same Barnabas who vouched for him, and he made sure that the apostles accepted him and that the whole church did as well. By the time we get to Acts chapter 13, we find that Barnabas is now a part of the church in Antioch. In fact, he's on the leadership team. So clearly, he has taken key leadership. We also know that Antioch became the center for the launch of worldwide Christianity. We also know that the church in Antioch would send him out along with the Apostle Paul, and they would become the first ever missionary team to the Gentiles. What else do we know? Well, we also know that eventually Paul and Barnabas would have a dispute between them, and that that dispute was so severe that it would break their missionary team. You know, Barnabas decides to take Mark along. Paul says no. You know, Mark had quit on the first missionary journey. I suppose the situation had become so tough that Mark just couldn't imagine keeping going. So when they're ready for the second missionary journey, Paul doesn't want to waste time on taking Mark again. And Barnabas, this son of encouragement, wants to give Mark a second chance. And so Paul and Barnabas decided to separate their ways because the dispute between them over this young man was so severe. Now, part of the reason why Barnabas was so ready to give Mark a second chance is because, as we learn later on, and we find that in, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Mark and Barnabas were actually cousins. You know, perhaps because of close family relationships and because he had seen more of Mark than Paul had seen of him, Barnabas was not willing to give up on him. But that does tell us something about him, doesn't it? Barnabas' attitude initially towards Paul when no one trusted him, and then towards Mark when Paul didn't want to trust him, Barnabas continued to be the man who encouraged and who continued to see the best in others. He was the son of encouragement. In the end, it was Barnabas who was right about Mark, not Paul. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, we're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry, In Doubt, is essential. To discover more about these ministries, to receive Dr. Neufeld's new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust, on CD for free, or to offer a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, call one 800 6632425 or visit backtothebible.ca Later in his ministry, Paul had come to admit that Mark had been very useful to him. Barnabas knew that. He knew that Mark could be redeemed after all, he was the son of encouragement. So Barnabas left a legacy 
You know, to this day, there are some who suggest that that the book of Hebrews was written by him, but we simply don't know that to be the case. You know, at any rate, the son of encouragement rightfully earned his name. A generous man, a man who loved the Lord, a man who loved the people of God. The next section in Acts begins with chapter 5, and it should be seen as a contrast to the encouraging example of Barnabas. So let's begin to read Acts 5, 1 to 6. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You know, we need to carefully consider several important aspects of this narrative. I mean, first, let's talk about the nature of the sin, shall we? You know, we're told that Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, and again, as before, we're not told they sold all of their property. And I keep mentioning this so that we'll not think that the New Testament church demanded that all of us need to part from our private property. It's simply not the case. But we notice that the sin is withholding some of the proceeds of the land they sold. But again, we should be careful not to think that the sin lies in withholding a part of what was sold. I mean, Peter makes it quite clear that Ananias was free to sell it and to keep all the proceeds. We assume from this a truth that Christians have always held. Giving is voluntary. I mean, consider the difference between a gift and a tax. In all my years of paying taxes, I've never received a note of thank you from the federal government in which they've praised me for my generous gift. No, it's quite the opposite. If I don't contribute to my share of taxes, I will no doubt receive a visit in which a failure to pay results in prosecution. But Peter makes it quite clear to Ananias that he was under no obligation, none whatsoever. And so at the outset, the issue really remains but one issue. Ananias and Sapphira had conspired to deceive the church. See, I need at this point to come back to this matter of public giving, which clearly was a part of the early church's practice. You know, many of us might object to that practice because Jesus himself seems to have taught us to do the opposite. You might remember Matthew 6, 1-4. Jesus is speaking and he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then later on he goes on to say, And when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the question we might raise here is simply this, was the early church violating our Lord's teaching? Well, I don't think so. And let me explain why. The context of Jesus' teaching on giving is practicing righteousness in order to be seen by men. In Luke 21, it records the rich putting their gifts into offering boxes, and then it contrasts a widow who puts in two small copper coins, and Jesus notices it, and he doesn't denounce the public nature of giving. Rather, he remarks that the widow gave all that she had to live on, and the rich were merely giving out of the overflow of what they had. So Jesus is condemning those who make a show out of what they give, but it's really a hypocrisy. 
Their seemingly generous gifts are not gifts at all. They're just attempts to impress others. The point that Jesus is making is not that public acts of obedience are not important. They are important. And giving are acts of obedience to the Lord. And that's why the church celebrated Barnabas, a man who led the way, encouraging God's people to be generous. And and in this, the possibility of deception, of hypocrisy, of using the act of giving to be seen and praised by others, well, it's a great temptation. See, in that case, according to Jesus, it would be better to keep the matter a secret and make it between you and God alone. And this is the sin of Ananias, along with his wife, Sapphira. It's not the sin of holding a portion back. It's the sin of using your giving as a means of gaining status. Why is that sin so horrible? Why does it result in the death of Ananias again? We have to go back to what Peter said. Notice verse 3, Peter says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. See, from Peter's perspective, lying to the church is lying to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who has come, and out of that, the church was formed. It's the Holy Spirit's role to glorify Jesus, which is the role of the church. And furthermore, the Holy Spirit empowers the church to reach out to the lost. But such hypocrisy in the church undercuts the church's reputation before the watching world, making her ineffective because of her hypocrisy. And so Ananias, if his example is followed, would undercut the opportunity of reaching the lost by making the church sound like it's full of hypocrites. Sound familiar? Is this serious? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You know, in context, the temple, it's a metaphor for the church. If anyone destroys the local church, God will destroy him. And here in Acts 5, we see that the warning is being worked out for all to see. Several more items, and this one's just simply a side note. Would you notice in verse 3, Peter tells Ananias he has lied to the Holy Spirit, and then verse 4, he repeats himself by saying he's lied to God. So clearly, Peter knows that the Holy Spirit is God. And this text is one of the texts that we should use when we seek to discover the true identity of the Holy Spirit. He is God, the third person of the Trinity. Now, next, we need to ask ourselves, how is it that Peter knew about this deception? Um, Did he have spies finding out, you know, the giving patterns or the price of land or all of that kind of stuff? I think most assuredly not. What we have here is an example of one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul mentions a list of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. They're given for the benefit of building up the local church. And one of those gifts is the gift of knowledge. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't imply that, you know, the gift of knowledge is the gift of studying theology. Of course not. All God's people are to grow deeply into biblical truth. We are to know our Bible. We are to know the doctrines of Scripture exceedingly well. You know, I think the gift of knowledge is a gift that's given at a unique and important time in which one individual will know something that can't be known using normal means. I think that right here, the Holy Spirit on this occasion gifted Peter with the knowledge that Ananias was lying to the Holy Spirit. You know, at any rate, at the very moment Peter confronts him, Ananias falls down dead. And our text says that great fear came upon everyone who was there. Well, no doubt. I mean, the matter of truth-telling and protecting the faithfulness of God's people, it's a matter of great seriousness. So we keep reading, Acts 5, 7 to 11. 
After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You know, our first question upon reading this might be, well, Peter, why didn't you simply tell Sapphira of the great tragedy that's just befallen her husband and warn her that it was possible that it could happen to her as well? Well, clearly the text doesn't tell us why Peter didn't say it. But what the text does tell us is that Peter asked her if that's how much you sold the land for. See, I would imagine that no one would have been asked that before. I would also imagine that Sapphira must have noticed the absence of her husband. What's going on? You see, up to this point in time, it wouldn't have been clear to the church whether or not Sapphira had been a part of her husband's deception or not. But she was about to reveal herself. She says, yes, this is definitely the amount. She's clearly in it with her husband. So Peter then tells her about the death of her own husband and tells her that her own is going to come right now. And I suspect that that's another word of knowledge and she simply falls down just like her husband and she dies. And you can guess what happened. Everyone feared God. Now I began with a few illustrations about giving and the rumor that all the church really wants is your money. It is true that God calls us to recognize that we don't own anything and he owns everything. And it's also true that all giving is voluntary, but it's also true that we are to give generously. It is God's command. Money is a test of our integrity. Are we motivated by love for God? Or are we motivated for the love of the praise of people? Thanks so much, John. You know, the issues of giving and generosity tend to be sensitive spots for a lot of Christians, but it really is fundamental to who we are as God's people. Ben, I want to say something, and that is, I, <laughs> of all the topics that are controversial, I can't think of one more controversial than money. I, and I mean that most sincerely. I mean, you can imagine all the things that you might think are controversial, but if I've ever had criticism in my ministry, it's around this very issue. Um, there's something about us wanting to hold on to what we have as if we have it. I mean, we're just one heartbeat away from losing everything, and, and we need to remember that everything belongs to God, and therefore generosity is a test of our own faith. Believe God and give generously. Thanks, John. That helps. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You remind us every day, you challenge us to ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised. And that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener. Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful. And it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical, and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. On behalf of every member of the ministry team, Dr. John, Phil, the hosts of In Doubt, thank you for all you do. 
To discover all the ministry resources available to you or to offer a financial gift to support these programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust.